Hey everyone, Giordano here from The Juice Media. Welcome back to The Juice Media Podcast. As you know, this podcast normally acts as a companion to our latest Honest Government ad, which in this case was about the United Australia Party. But with everything happening right now in the world, I want to turn our attention to more urgent matters. Just a few days ago, the IPCC published part two of its sixth assessment report. Most people won't have even heard about it because at around the same time, this war criminal decided to launch a full-scale fucking invasion of Ukraine, which for good reason has captured our attention and dominated headlines. But climate change doesn't stop for wars or pandemics, as we are seeing in Australia where massive floods have utterly devastated swathes of Queensland and New South Wales. That is why I want to dedicate this podcast not to Clive Palmer's monumental bullshit, but to understanding what this latest IPCC report says, what we should be doing about it, and importantly, ways to cope with the psychological toll that can come from dealing with the climate crisis. As you know, I'm a firm believer in handing the mic to and amplifying the voices of climate scientists, which is why I'm stoked to have as my guest today, not one, but two climate scientists, Peter Kalmus and Ella Gilbert. <clears throat> I mean, Peter Kalmus and Ella. Gilbert. Based in California, Peter is a climate scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, where he uses satellite data to study the rapidly changing Earth. As well as writing regularly for major publications, Peter also wields one of the most cited climate science accounts on Twitter, where he doesn't mince his words when it comes to speaking about what he sees coming. After my chat with Peter, I'll also be talking with Ella Gilbert in London, who is part of the next generation of climate scientists that's emerging and who are turning to YouTube to help people understand the climate fuckery that's unfolding. I hope you enjoy our chat and I'll catch you on the other side. Here we are, we're doing it. Yeah, finally, finally, Peter. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the Juice Media Podcast, Peter Kamos. It's really great to have you here. It's it's great to be here. I love your work so much and I think it's so incredibly important. And so I'm I'm a huge fan. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, mutual fans of your work, you do amazing work. Uh, one of the things that that really um, amazed me when I was watching that film, Don't Look Up, uh, which a lot of people will have seen by now uh, on Netflix, mm-hmm. um, whenever Jennifer Lawrence's character comes up the climate scientist who discovers the comet and she's becomes yeah. exasperated because she's trying to tell the world we're all gonna fucking die can you please like pay attention to what we're doing i just think of you peter like that that's yeah. like for me it's like that character was modeled on your on on your obviously not just you a lot of climate scientists i feel think I feel so. like they were validated by that character but oh, you yeah. in particular how did you feel watching that film I I had like so much warm fuzzy feeling. It was really surprising. I it was it was I got really emotional watching it, just like in a good way. Like just I'm like this is really happening. Like this is mainstream. This is what it feels like to me, and uh, and the world is getting a view of that. And it's been it's been a very lonely thing to to be trying to sound the alarm for you know um, almost two decades and. To basic, you know, until very recently, to essentially be laughed at for doing that and be scoffed at and to be ignored and um, what a, you know, just yeah, I I felt I really felt seen and I I can't I don't really have the words to articulate how important that feeling was of of feeling seen, but it really did mean a lot to me. And then to see the um, to see the response like in the in the following weeks and to realize that it really was mainstream. So my theory of change, by the way, Giordano, is that we need a billion climate activists because you and you and Juice Media are very well aware of this. The 
The government's basically controlled by fucking kleptocrats. And um, we don't live in democracies either in, in the United States or Australia. Like they try to, it's propaganda to try to make us think that we live in democ democracies, but it's money that really talks, right? And the more money someone has, essentially the more influence and the votes they have. And with the fossil fuel industry, they have so much money. They have so much influence. Buying politicians is really, really cheap for them. Buying media companies is really cheap for, for them. So they control the they control the information sphere and they control the political sphere. And they've been delaying action for such a long time. So, so we need activists to counteract that. We basically need a climate movement that's stronger than the fossil fuel industry. And we're not, I don't see how we can get that in time unless we have mainstream things like this film. And I hope that I hope it turns into lots more films, lots more climate storytelling. The stories are what stories are what guide large numbers of people, right? You can't have a powerful movement unless that movement has a very clear story that's kind of driving it and that's guiding it and that's pushing it forward. So we need the story, the scary story, which is what Don't Look Up was, but we need so many more stories too. We need stories of social change and stories of solidarity and stories of, of us building the, the world that we all know deep down inside we can, uh, you know, we can have a better world, a, more, a world with more equity and less violence and a world where we're more in harmony with other species and, and this beautiful web of life. So, you know, I, I know we can do better as a species um, and getting those kinds of stories into the mainstream, I think would really help with that. So that, that's part of why it meant so much to me. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's basically an integral part to my theory of change, right? To get out of this mess, this nightmare. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned uh, um, equity in there. And, um, you know, one of the things that I felt when watching uh, the film, okay, this isn't going to be a podcast review of Don't Look Up, but just uh, yeah. uh, just uh, on, on that point is, you know, that that was a story about um, an affluent Western society dealing with the, the comet crashing. But we also need to hear stories mm -hmm. of what people are, 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 the comet has already fucking crashed in some parts of yeah. this planet. Yeah. And those are stories also that we need to start hearing um, because it, it, we're still dealing with climate as if it's something that's going to happen at some point in the future. Yes, it's very close, but actually it's it, it's happening already in, in, in some countries. And I know over the last year when we were communicating, you mentioned there's a fucking climate famine in Madagascar that doesn't, people don't even know about. Um, and and uh, I think you, you alerted me to that. I didn't, I wasn't even aware of that. And there's going to be so much more. So this is the thing that really frightens me. All right. Um, you know, and this, we can, we can kind of segue into the IPCC report. So it's not, it's not really rocket science. All right. So we've got a planet that's heating up at a 10th of a degree Celsius every five years on average. So it's about double that over land areas. It's driven by, by burning fossil fuels. And the fact that we still burn fossil fuels is driven by the lies of the fossil fuel industry. So that's why we need this movement is to like waken up. We need to revoke that social license. In my opinion, we should be seizing fossil fuel assets uh, because if you're still investing in that shit and if you're still you know, a fossil fuel capitalist or a lobbyist, you are bringing the whole species down and not just our species, but all the millions of species on this only place in the universe that we know to have life. If that's not breaking a social contract, and worthy of having your assets seized. I don't know what is. And then we, we you know, we, should, we could talk about this net zero by 2050 thing, which is absolute bullshit. So that's a way to prevent action today, right? We know, so, so we're, we're gaining this, you know, 10th of degree 
globally every five years. What I was going to say is that that's very obviously going to make all of the stuff that we're starting to experience now, which is just the merest beginnings of where we're heading. So everything, all of these trends on the Earth system, dozens, hundreds, no matter where you look, ecosystems, sea levels, um, wildfire propensity, droughts, precipitation, right? These massive rainfalls that we're seeing. Um, everywhere you look in the Earth system, you have this trend, this, these things that should be flat. If we were on a healthy planet, a planet in equilibrium, a stable planet, all of these things would be flat. They're noisy, but if you look at them for long enough, they're flat. They're now all trending, which means all of the impacts and disasters that we've just started feeling are going to get worse every single year, year after year after year, as long as we keep burning fossil fuels. So the flooding that we're seeing now, the fires that that we're seeing now, in a few years, we're gonna long for, for the, these days, right? Because it's just gonna keep getting, and this is what I just don't understand. This is such a simple thing for people to understand, but somehow you don't get, the pitchforks don't come out really until people feel like their lives are threatened right now. So it's very hard to convince them that we literally need to wrest power from these sociopaths now when it's when their lives are going to be threatened in five years or maybe in 10 years. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's just the physics is this. It's yeah. this to us. It feels slow rolling, but it's extremely, extremely fast. And it's I don't know. I find the whole situation terrifying somehow, you know. Yeah. Well, look, listen, listening to you talk, I kind of want to mm. get a pitchfork out. I know, um, right? But um, just putting a price on the damage would in itself be enough. And if that isn't, then, okay, pitchforks. But we haven't even got to the stage of that. And I think you said recently, like, we've still got fucking frequent flyer programs where we encourage yeah. people to fly. It's like, okay, you know, there's a whole debate about whether flying or not, but at least don't, don't reward people for doing it. Yeah. And the frequent flying thing, that's a great example of the social license that I'm talking about. And also something else I like to talk about, which is a transition into what I call emergency mode, which, which emergency mode basically would mean that the public felt enough urgency um, that they were actually willing to make some sacrifices to have a fucking livable planet, which we should be willing to make those sacrifices. And then you you know, you'd have to throw all the climate deniers out of office, um, which you could do if the public woke up enough, right? And and you could, you know, this is something that should cross party lines because we all, no matter what your political leanings, you still need food and air and water, you know. And and I, I personally believe that what's happening to the earth system is literally terrifying. Anyone who knows and understands what's happening now has to feel this terror. And the terror doesn't mean, like, I still do stuff. I still write articles. I still write scientific papers and do analyses. I even still, you know, take my kids to music lessons and go out and have dinner with my wife sometime and celebrate anniversaries. So I'm you still do terrified. that. Oh, you're lucky person. I do. <laughs> and I, I push as hard as I can for change. But, you know, the, there yeah. are these people that, who, you know, some of them are scientists, some of them are activists. They fancy themselves, you know, communicators for, for climate. And for, for the longest time, they were telling us, they were telling me, they wanted me to shut up because they thought I was scaring people too much. And they thought that would, if you scare people, they'll shut down. So I think it's the opposite. I think fear is the thing that the way our brains respond to stuff that if there's danger coming, we're afraid. And that motivates us to, to, to actually act, right? Because there's so many things in our lives that strap us down and keep us just going on like as we've been going, right? Like there's there's bills to pay, there's you know, kids to get to school, there's 
work to do, there's groceries to shop for, whatever. So um, it's it's hard to, life is hard enough without fucking doing something about climate change. So that's why you need the fear. And then if you, if, if, you know, once the public has enough of a sense of urgency and you don't anesthetize them by telling them net zero by 2050, you don't anesthetize them by saying, you know, like, the people in charge have this figured out. It's going to be okay. You don't anesthetize them by saying direct air capture. That's what we need. We don't know how to do that. And even if we did, it would be incredibly expensive. And we'd be putting that price onto our the backs of our kids, right? Which seems incredibly unfair. Not only that, they might not even be able to deal with it. So you, I think it's really important to tell the truth. Um, we're, we're already pretty fucked. And like you said, some places, especially in the global South, are way more fucked than other places. And with every ton of carbon dioxide, every liter of petrol that's burnt, every little piece of coal that's burnt, literally makes the situation worse. The thing that you have to understand is that all these climate disasters, like we talked about, they will get worse. They have no, they have no choice. They'll start happening more frequently. They'll be stronger. The heat waves will be worse. The wildfires will be worse. The floods will be worse. It's just physics. And they'll start, since they're starting to come more frequently, they'll start overlapping in ways that will make things, you know, even worse, right? They'll synergize. So what that means is that I think since things are already getting pretty bad, it might be faster to just get those billion climate activists and basically replace the leaders. If the leaders aren't willing to go into climate emergency mode, which basically essentially means you have to have a year by year plan to ramp down the fossil fuel industry fast, like say maybe by 2030. What we need right now is to, we need to go to survival mode. Like we need to focus on agriculture and doing agriculture with less emissions and, you know, kind of getting the worst parts of agriculture out and 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 using these precious, precious fossil fuels for just keeping the lights on essentially while we, transition as quickly as we can. Does that make sense? That's climate emergency mode. Net zero by 2050 um, and, and talking about things like direct air capture, which we don't have, that's like kicking the can down the road. Um, here in Australia, there's um, there's a lot of interest now in, in uh, you know, we need to electrify everything, get everything off fossil fuels, connected to renewables and battery storage and EVs. So, I mean, this is a different, this is a different uh, survival mode to what you're saying. This is more like, hey, we don't have to sacrifice travel and transport and all these things. We can change the way that we generate the electricity to power these things. Is that something that you, how do you respond to that? Well, okay. So it's, it's a, we're, we're at the point of climate breakdown now where it's a hard sort of calculus and we have to accept that. So, so we have to weigh that against kind of, continuing with the lifestyles that we're used to and that we like, um, you know, and, you know, I would argue that all of the speed of, of like running around and flying around and driving around so much and having these huge houses and consuming a lot, it's really, I don't think it's making us happy. <laughs> um, I think maybe, and this is what I kind of focus on in my book, which came out in 2017 called Being the Change. But I, you know, I kind of think we need a little bit to come down to earth and have things like more community and to slow down a little bit more and maybe to work less hours per week, right? Because right now that, so this, it's all connected, right? And so this is why we, again, to go back to the storytelling, this is why I think it's so important to have good climate stories because right now the main stories are like, the more you fly, the more successful you are, the busier you are, the harder you work, you know, you wanna get ahead. Um, 
So that's my response to that. You know, I, I, I know it's a hard sell because no one wants to give up eating meat. You know, I know this from my experience that, you know, I, I gave up a lot of this stuff and I don't really miss a lot of it, the, all the flying and eating meat and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, when I started doing that, I kind of thought maybe it would be kind of contagious if I like, you know, people would be like, oh, like maybe it's not so bad to give up this stuff. And that's not what happened. <laughs> what happened is um, people, people feel they like apologize to me for their flights, but they still take them. So I just make people feel guilty now, which was not my intention. So that's why I, I, I stopped even pushing for that. But now I'm just like, man, we just got to get people out. That's why, like, now I'm I moved on to the pitchforks, I guess. <laughs> so you tried, you tried, you tried the the peaceful means. Nah, yeah. Yeah, fuck it, let's go to the pitchforks, Peter. Let's I've tried talk. So many things, Giordano. So many things. <laughs> You've t- yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, this IPCC report, which mm-hmm. has just come out. Have you had a chance to read this latest report, Peter? Can you fill us in on what what is your <laughs> understanding of uh, what it tells us? I would say for me, um, there aren't a lot of surprises in uh, either of the working group reports. I, I kind of read it to to see if it was, to see how much it was kind of like using the sort of ideas which I've just been giving uh, in the rest of this podcast, you know, like switching to climate emergency mode, or is it talking about you know, is was it is it saying that net zero by 2050 is good enough? And I would say it's shifting more and more toward a sort of emergency mode framing that doesn't use that language, of course. But it makes it very clear that the hotter we let it get, the more fucked we are, obviously. Um, so that is, uh, you know, basically, I would say the overarching point of the Working Group 2 report is that we need to rapidly, rapidly reduce emissions between now and 2030, or else we are extremely fucked. And what I don't, that's paraphrasing them. And well, I, mean, uh, I was just going to quote, I mean, the, the, the quote that has gained a lot of uh, traction uh, does sound fairly alarmist as far as, you know, IPCC authors are allowed to be. And it says, quote, any further delay in concerted anticipatory global action on adaptation uh, and mitigation will miss a briefly and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all, which you've paraphrased as like, either we act now or we're fucked. Basically, it's tr- that's what it's saying. Yeah. And and one thing that does kind of bug me about that statement, I think it's great. I'm, I'm, you know, I applaud them for being so forthright, but um, they don't say kind of like how rapidly that window is closing. And again, like it depends on who who it's closing on, right? So it's People who died in the floods in in Eastern Australia or in New York City last year, or who got burned to death in the wildfires, and and non-humans um, too, you know, um, the coral reefs that are dying. The window's already closed for those those persons, human and non-human. One disservice that climate communicators have done to humanity again over the last few decades is to give the sense that things are closing. And if we don't act soon, you know, we're going to miss this opportunity. So now here we are where we're, we're, what we're dealing with and why so many of us are grieving is that we've already lost a lot. And what we're doing now is fighting. We need to fight as hard as we can um, to, to minimize how much more is lost. And that's a very, to me, it's a very hard place to be. And, and, you know, emotionally, I struggle with it a lot. And I, I struggle with the norms that, 
make it seem like sometimes, so, so I read these reports and I think about the science and I think about all the stuff that we genuinely are losing and how it's accelerating and how we're going to lose more. And then I see world leaders saying like, let's, we need to, OPEC needs to produce more oil or we need to drill more. You know, I almost, am I an alarmist, right? Like I sound like an alarmist to myself. And then I check myself and I'm like, no, like this is really happening. Like I, it's a weird thing to say, but I'm actually right. <laughs> and I've been, I've been right up till now and people didn't believe me. And here we are now. And I'm right about where we're going in the next five years, next 10 years, the next 20 years, if we don't rapidly end the fossil fuel industry. And I'm, I know I'm right about that too. And it sounds like I'm, you know, conceited to say that, but, and it's just, it's so exhausting to me as a human, you know, we're social animals to have to be constantly trying to convince the public that doesn't want to hear about it, that, that, that the way they think about the future and about climate is, is wrong. Just on, on that uh, point about, you know, individual responsibility versus collective action. That's another debate that we're seeing a lot of. And, um, mm-hmm. and I don't think that there's like, it's, there's a right or a wrong. It's like both. Yes. We need to do both. Yeah, That's, I agree. You know, this is cut straight to the chase. Obviously having a debate <laughs> about which one is right. It's kind of playing into the, 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 the denial playbook because it just gets us arguing with each other rather than getting on with the job. The thing that still gives me hope, Giordano, I haven't given up hope, um, but I don't like false hope at all. I don't like this, you know, talk about, um, I don't know, just like we need some more technology or we can carbon offsets or electric cars. Like that stuff doesn't give me any hope. Um, what gives me hope is is seeing human, like seeing how society can, you know, maybe it's like sort of like a flock of fish. It's very complex, right? Like how we constantly uh, responding to each other. And you, I mean, you see it when you have this sociopath uh, just for out of so needlessly, just out of cruelty to invade a sovereign nation like this and to murder, I consider it murder, um, civilians and children and to destroy wantonly, you know, a, a whole nation like this. Um, then look how the world responds and look how fast, you know, that, that shift happens, right? I think something similar is in our future uh, with climate as well. We'll have a collective, you know, oh fuck moment um, where, where we shift faster than, you know, um, the aging climate activists uh, fondest dreams. And suddenly it becomes super uncool to burn fossil fuels. Um, suddenly it becomes super uncool for politicians to delay climate action, uh, becomes super uncool to fly halfway around the world for a three-day vacation that you post on Instagram. Um, and it becomes really cool to, to be a climate activist. We don't even talk about climate activism anymore because that's just what everyone is. And, um, and the first step has to be this kind of, this moment where we all realize that it's kind of like a Hitler attacking moment, except it's climate, you know, and um, and we and and we we start responding super fast. I mean, how long did it take for the United States to completely retool all of its industries to start turning out, you know, tanks and planes to to basically to stop the fascists? It took a matter of months, and so 
we we haven't even come close to that level of like collectivism on climate, right? So if we had and we were still failing, then I would probably be despairing. But I'm still waiting for that the the, the flock of fish to change direction and to get super excited about stopping climate and ecological breakdown. Peter, um, thanks again for, for joining us. I wanna ask you one last question before I let you go. Uh, one of the um, issues that the, uh, this latest IPCC report covers is also human health and also specifically mental health as a mm -hmm. result of climate change. Um, so the exposure to extreme events, uh, weather events can have impact on mental health, including loss of sense of identity and place, heightened anxiety, risk of depression and suicide, along with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, you know, that also makes me think about the, 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 the impact and the toll that it has on, on climate scientists like yourself who work and are maybe you're not experiencing the, the weather effects yourself. I don't know, maybe you have with the latest fires in, in California, but generally always being exposed to this information and this and this data. I was wondering if you could explain how do you deal with the emotional tolls that comes from working with this unfolding catastrophe? Can you, you know, how, how do you manage to do the tireless work that you do among the grief, the depression, the anxiety that you often express so beautifully and, and powerfully in your writing? Uh, I know that many people listening to us today will also have these feelings and perhaps you can share something with them. Yeah, well, so so first of all, I don't always handle it so well. You know, um, sometimes I get emotional and, um, you know, the duty cycle isn't isn't so bad. You know, most of the time I'm doing fine. Um, but sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and sometimes I'll be giving a talk and I'll start to cry. I don't really mind the grief. It's the, it's the anxiety that I, I really watch out for because that's the thing that kind of makes me not able to function and makes me just completely miserable. Um, so, so those are my two kind of dominant emotions, I would say, is, is grief and uh, and anxiety. And the, the grief, you know, people say that you never lose the grief, you carry it with you and you learn to live with it. And I think that's, that's right. And, you know, the grief calls me to, to do what I do. You know, I, I just feel like, honestly, I feel so just grateful to be alive on this planet. And like, I, I feel like I, it sounds corny, I guess, but I really feel like I owe my whole existence to this gorgeous, gorgeous planet. And that it's kind of called me to be one spokesperson of, of very many for it. And, and to me, that's a great honor um, to be called like that and to serve it. And so, you know, that, that, that helps me keep going because um, I'm not doing this for me. Uh, so, so that gives me a lot more courage and a lot more strength. And then, the, so that's the grief part. The anxiety part, I do the things that, you know, most people, know to do to try to deal with anxiety, try to get enough sleep, try to get enough exercise. I started running during the pandemic, which has been super, super helpful. I'm not like a very good runner, but you know, uh, I feel so good while I'm running and then after I run. And so that, that really helps. Um, playing music with my kids helps me. Uh, and then, you know, the thing that, that helps me that's, that, that most people don't do is meditating. And, um, it's very, very clear when I, when I, if I, my meditation practice falls apart and I stop doing it, the anxiety kind of comes flooding in. And then, you know, so I'm actually going on a, on a 10 day 
meditation retreat uh, in a couple of weeks. And I'm really looking forward to it because I, in the last few weeks I have had uh, more anxiety than usual. And so I, I want my meditation batteries to get recharged. And that, that helps me tremendously. Um, so I, we probably don't have time to go into why that works, but I do kind of understand it. It's again, it's basically, it's, it's all about making things not about me. Right. And, and not being attached to like successes or feeling aversion to my own failures and to just have this equanimity and to just fight as hard as I can, no matter what comes and to be a little bit, a little bit detached from it all. Right. And, and, but in a good way, if that makes sense. That's really, um, and it's very personal to you. So I really want to thank you for, for sharing that with us. And uh, also, you know, thank you for your service to the planet and uh, to all the, the living things on it, which, uh, you know, you're yeah. one of the people that I know that, that really I've seen who fight so hard and, um, you know, mince your words. And you've been a real inspiration to us in the work that we do. And I know to a lot of other people as well um, who really um, uh, think highly of you. And I know it's not about you, but what you've done really encourages everyone to lift their game so thank you very much for all you do and and likewise and you know and it is it does help to hear stuff like that we take the kind words and it helps us keep going right and it helps it's a it's a it inoculates us against the the bad words that inevitably come towards us right so thank you for that and your videos are hilarious and they're so fucking true so uh, that's, you know, they, they, I think they help a lot of us too uh, with our mental health. Thank you so much for joining us, Peter. We really appreciate it. And uh, all the best on your meditation retreat. And thank you. Yeah, thank Keep you. up the great work. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Peter, who joined us from his home in California. We now cross over to London to speak with Ella Gilbert, an atmospheric scientist and a self-described cloud nerd who will help us unpack more of the IPC's Working Group 2 report and talk about why she's using YouTube to conduct her work. Welcome to the Juice Media Podcast, Dr. Ella Gilbert. Great to have you here. Oh, thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, so first of all, how, how are you in these incredible weird times yeah no it's just some pretty strange times we're we're existing through isn't it um i think okay but uh who knows really yeah <laughs> good answer good answer um ella uh, the reason i came across you was uh because of your youtube uh um channel uh dr gills will link to it in the the channel description for those who want to uh find out more about what you do um but yeah, I uh, I was really stoked to see a young climate scientist using this this medium, and um, I was wondering what inspired you to to use this channel rather than I suppose the traditional medium that you know peer reviewed papers, which I'm sure you work in that field as well. But what inspired you to step outside of that and uh, and start publishing on YouTube? Well, I guess well first of all, I'm from a long line of thespians, so right. the kind of jazz hands mode of of doing things seems like a, a natural thing that's in my psyche. But I think primarily I saw myself as having a unique position in that I've been privileged enough to do this research. I've been privileged enough to do so much education. I'm in a place where I have a good handle on lots of difficult and complex climate concepts. Um, but I also have the ability to talk like a normal person, I hope, uh, and help make that science 
accessible. And I think as a scientist and as a human being, I have a moral and ethical duty to to be that translator because that is a role that I feel that I can contribute to to climate action and climate change by educating people ultimately knowledge is power right so if I can help people access the sort of information that is traditionally behind a pay wall uh, and also written in the most inaccessible dense language behind an ivory tower if I can help people break down those walls in even my small way then I think that that is a service and I I became a climate scientist because I was an activist first and I think that's often it's not it's not necessarily a common um route in traditional academia um more and more so perhaps for for the younger generation of climate scientists actually um but I always wanted to contribute using climate change and climate science as a contribution to to tackle the climate crisis rather than just an interesting thing to do and uh there's a famous quote that I absolutely love that science is not finished until it's communicated. And that is what YouTube's about. Totally. I was going to say, this is, this is why I'm really uh, excited about, you know, climate scientists getting onto the platform and because, you know, there's so much bullshit and misinformation. It's exactly right. You know, everyone is a fucking expert on, on, on the internet, but we actually need experts to step outside of the, the lecture theaters and, and, and the conferences, which are important. They need to happen but we need people to actually come and talk and, and, and occupy that space. Cause otherwise a whole bunch of bullshit artists occupy that space. And that's it, a problem, right? That's it's part scary, of the right? For scientists, because it's, it's, it's new territory. It's, yeah. oh my God, I'm going to have to be faced by the man in the street, whoever that is. Yeah. And that's, that's terrifying because, you know, scientists in the traditional sense, you know, old white man in lab coat, whatever you want to imagine as a scientist is used to talking to their mates and their mates going, yes, lovely paper. I will yeah. read it. And, and if someone's critical know, at a conference, it's very polite. Whereas on YouTube, it's like, this is shit. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I don't know what conferences you're going to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Polite well, in uh, articulate terms, maybe. Yeah. Um, well, let's put uh, your uh, the 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 communication that you know you want to um, serve the community with to use straight away. I thought you know um, the IPCC has recently published this really um, important report. Um, can you uh, break it down for us just a little bit? Because I feel like the world has you know the attention of the world is rightfully on Ukraine and what's happening there. This human tragedy that's unfolding but climate change doesn't stop for wars or pandemics. Uh, and uh, this major report has really gone under the radar. So I thought before we talk about the report, perhaps for those who aren't as plugged in, you, maybe you could explain what the sixth assessment report is, where it fits into the bigger picture and how there are different sub reports. And then we can get onto the, this recent one. Sure. So, I mean, the IPCC is this incredible undertaking. It's, thousands of different scientists working on producing these assessment reports and this is one of those I think it assessed 14,000 different individual pieces of scientific literature it took eight years to produce this particular report and bearing in mind that the majority of that was well the end of that was during a pandemic uh, that's quite a an undertaking 
Um, it's a UN body and it gets approved line by line. The one of the reports gets approved line by line uh, by governments and it involves uh, governments from all over the world and it reports on climate change and can inform policy. It's not policy prescriptive. It doesn't tell governments what to do. It says, hey, here's the evidence. You can do what you like with it. Um, it's also important to remember that they don't, the IPCC doesn't do its own research. So this is a synthesis of everything that's been published um, in the last, you know, six or seven years or so, up to uh, this point when they started writing it rather than reading. Um, so these assessment reports come out every seven or eight years. Um, and with every single one, they get starker. This is a sixth iteration. Um, and the reports are broken down into three working groups. So working group one is the, the physical science and that's the kind of physical processes and the changes to the climate system, the changes that we've observed and also the ones that are predicted. Um, working group two, which is so the report that- Working group one came out in- In August, last year, Just before COP26, the Glasgow, Glasgow summit, that was the code red for humanity report that most people heard about, right? Precisely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that one was the first one really to say that climate change is unequivocally related to human activity. The wording has got stronger every single time, um, but this was the first time it was said that it was unequivocal and that human activity is the dominant cause of climate change and that it is climate change is widespread, it's rapid and it's intensifying. So this is quite strong language from a uh, what you might call a, a conservative uh, body that is backed by pretty much all governments mm -hmm. um, with all their different agendas, let's right. say. And then working group two is the one that looks at the impacts and that's impacts on biological systems as well as on human systems. And this is focusing on things like extreme weather events. So heat waves, droughts, wildfires, floods, all of those kinds of things. Um, and then also looking at things like ecological collapse and how all of this impacts human beings and what that means for people all over the world, which is obviously what most people are actually interested in because it's in a sense abstract to think about the, the changes to uh, the cryosphere, for example. Um, okay, that ice sheet is going to lose 5,000 gigatons of ice per year or whatever it is. That doesn't mean very much, but when you say that 40% of the world's population becoming highly vulnerable to climate change impacts, and that could be any kind of climate impact, whether that's uh, drought or wildfire or uh, compromised food production, for example, um, then that makes more of a tangible difference, I guess. You and then I, sh I should also mention just finally, mm -hmm. that there is also a working group three, and that hasn't come out yet, but um, this is the, <laughs> I think Climate Adam put it in their, their video, um, this is like a, a three-part trilogy. The second one is already, always really depressing and the, the down point of the movie, uh, but the ending is always on the up. So working group three right. is the solutions. It's so the how like we mitigate. The, the two towers and now we're coming for the return of the king in the- Yeah, Lord yeah, yeah, precisely, exactly that, right. yeah, yeah. That's a good way to think about it. Um, and that so we're in the dip, coming... we're in the dip. Okay, right. Th thanks, for, thanks for that. Um, and the next one is coming out in April this year. 
Is that right? It's I'm going to, yeah, go with that. I, I don't actually know the exact dates. I know it's okay. coming, but I don't know when. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the working group to report. Maybe you could just pull out some of the, the highlights or low, or low points, if you want to put it that way, um, of, of what, what your takeaways were. <laughs> One of the takeaways is that the impacts are being felt here and now already that 40% of the global population are already, and I quote, highly vulnerable to climate change impacts. Um, and that's that what, like, these, how many people are we talking? We're talking three and a half billion okay. people, thereabouts. It's a lot of people. Um, and this is any kind of climate impact that could be floods, it could be wildfires, it could be hot extremes, it could be cold extremes, all of these kinds of. Uh, the variety of different impacts. And I think that's another thing that uh, I took away from the report is that there is not really any part of the climate system that is untouched by these impacts. It's everywhere. It's climate change is changing every part of the climate. It's not just causing temperature rise, if that can just be a thing. It's it's causing sea level rise, it's causing uh, sea ice decline, it's causing ice sheet melting. Obviously, I'm a polar scientist, I'm gonna have a cryospheric bias, but it's also causing wildfires, it's causing droughts, it's causing flooding, it's causing food systems to be more vulnerable, and it's causing changes to the hydrological cycle, which means that rainfall is less reliable, it means that people who rely on glacial meltwater for their water um, are becoming their water supplies are becoming compromised um, it's it's a really varied set of impacts um, and they're already being felt and every single ton of co2 and every single tenth of a degree of warming will make those worse i think the other thing that's really really important to take from the working group two report is that they identify that urgent action is required and also that there is a rapidly, I can't remember the exact wording they use, but a, a rapidly closing window of opportunity, I think is the phrase they use. To secure so, a livable and sustainable future for all. Yeah, that- Perfect, that quote, you've read yes. it. <laughs> you've done your homework. <laughs> well, I've got, it, I've got it in front of me, yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, Ella, uh, you probably know the um, Australia's East Coast has been absolutely smashed by floods. Uh, the town, one of the towns in northern New South Wales, Lismore, might go down in history as the first city to be completely devastated, wiped out by climate change. Uh, scientists are trying to understand this phenomenon uh, and that caused these floods. And we're hearing new terms like rain bombs and atmospheric rivers. Um, as an atmospheric scientist yourself, how do you look at this kind of extreme event in the context of climate change? That's, that sounds absolutely horrific. And to be honest, I've been very overwhelmed by the sheer volume of different news stories that yeah. are being thrown at us at the moment. So I haven't sure. been keeping track of it as much as I might otherwise have been. Um, I have seen a very scary image of a house submerged in a flood, but also on fire, which I think is attributed to uh, what's going on at the moment in Australia. Yeah. Um, we know that extreme events, whether they in whatever form they come are becoming more extreme um, with climate change. Um, 
particularly those sorts of wet extremes, because as the climate warms, it can hold on to more water vapor, which means that it's generally got more water in the atmosphere to do that dumping. Um, so that when you get uh, an extreme rainfall event, then it has, it holds more water, which can obviously have more of a wet effect. And we're seeing more extreme events all over the world and more types of different extreme events because I mean you often see it visualized as like a bell curve where you have a little hat and the hat represents the all the different types of weather events and the the little the brim of the hat is like the extremes either if we're talking about wet events uh, either the very dry ones or the very wet ones um, but because we're warming and changing our climate we're causing the hat to shift slightly towards the more uh, intense extreme events so not only does the kind of average extreme in quotes or you know average weather event become wetter the extremely wet events become wetter so you just shift the whole bell curve and you shift that which means that you get more extreme events and that's the kind of the same sort of thing when we're talking about temperature extremes that's why we see temperature records repeatedly smashed Ella, thanks so much for joining us I just want to ask you one uh, last question you know one of the things that um that the IPCC's uh, Working Group 2 report talks about is the impacts on um, all sorts of aspects, biodiversity and even migration and human health. And one of the aspects is mental health as well. It actually recognizes that it has a huge impact on, on, on mental health. How do you deal with that emotional toll that, that comes with that? I know a lot of people listening will also experience um, those kind of feelings perhaps you can share how you manage to get the work done um, and and also manage the the mental health side of things I think the answer the short answer is increasingly badly <laughs> but um, I think there's two answers here because firstly I often say like, as a scientist I can be a bit desensitized to it because you get so bogged down in your specific little niche. You're working on a very specific problem, uh, particularly because I'm a climate modeler. Um, I write code and do programming and it's very easy to kind of forget about the big picture when you're doing something like that. Um, but it's when I do my communication work, actually, that I really feel that emotional toll because I have to take a step back. Um, I think those are the moments when I really think, oh, fuck, this is this is really overwhelming. And particularly reading the IPCC reports, I cried when I read the first one. And the second one, reading through the report and making my video, I found it really difficult. And I continue to find all of this really, really difficult, but I can see the need for clear evidence-based information and that keeps me going. Um, the other way that I, I deal with it is by looking for the positives and also uh, I'm, I'm a boxer, so that really helps to be able to go and unleash all of that fear and anger and rage at the inadequacy of our leaders um, on a punch bag or occasionally have other people unleash their their fear and terror and anger on my face. 
Which isn't something for everyone. I feel sorry for the people that, if you're thinking of them as the climate crisis and you put your gloves on, I wouldn't want to be that person on the on the other end of that um, of that exchange. I'm very tired. My punches are very lackluster. <laughs> um, that's also, I imagine, also the the communication part of it. it. It makes you feel like you're you're dealing with 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 this issue in a in a in a hands-on direct way. So I don't know the reason that we focus on climate change and the honest government ads in our videos is it's partly, I mean, at least half is just to keep ourselves sane and to keep ourselves kind of feeling like we're doing something. Is it going to work? I don't know, but if I don't do this, I'm going to go out of my mind. So it's partly a self-medicating uh, process. Uh, Absolutely. I'm, I used to do, uh, I used to lock myself and super glue myself to things. And uh, my role in tackling the climate crisis has changed somewhat because I'm a scientist now, um, whatever that means. And my mode of activism, my way of contributing is now more as a communicator than as a, an activist. So I just, that's, yeah, I always feel like I need to do something because how can you not, how can you be confronted with this overwhelming of information about what we're doing to our amazing wonderful planet and not to do something so my something has changed but that is the way I see my contribution now well thank you very much for making that contribution thank thanks for stepping outside of the comforts of the academic uh, you know research sort of cloistered world and and taking on that emotional toll to help communicate uh, good luck with your youtube channel we'll keep we've subscribed i'll encourage others to do so but we'll put the link in the video description and uh yeah it's been really great to meet you ella and uh thanks so much for joining us today oh it's been such a pleasure and thank you all for your, all your amazing videos i have basically binge watched them all so thank you as well for your fantastic communication <laughs> Awesome. Take care. Thanks, Ella. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Juice Media Podcast. Over the coming weeks, assuming World War III doesn't break out, we'll be focusing on the coming election that's about to take place here in Australia. So we'll be back soon with our next Honest Government ad about that. Before we part ways today, I just want to remind everyone who might be feeling shit about what's happening in the world and the climate crisis in particular, that a lot of us are feeling that way and it's important to look after ourselves and each other. In the podcast, we've discussed some of the ways in which we can more healthily deal with the climate crisis. But if you want to find out more, the Australian Psychology Society has published a guide for coping with climate change distress. We'll put the link in the show notes and video description. And of course, remember that taking action is medicine. And one action that's worth taking right now, if you're in Australia, is volunteering for one of the climate-focused parties and independent candidates who are running in the coming election to kick out this coal and bullshit fueled government. Thanks to Ellen for helping to produce and edit the Juice Media podcast. And as always, thank you to our patrons who make the podcast and the Honest Government ads possible. In particular, our patron producers who support us via our highest patron tier of $100 a month. Thank you. If you value our work, please consider joining them at patreon.com forward slash the juice media. You've been listening to the juice media podcast with me, Giordano. I'll catch you very soon for our next honest government ad until then take care. And if you're fighting for this planet, thank you for all that you do. Mm -hmm.